Hello, I'm Uriah Saint-Gist. Welcome to Let God Speak. We are glad you have joined us for today's discussion on the book of Ephesians. What do you look for when choosing a church? Is it a convenient location, a friendly atmosphere, good children's program, or inspiring worship? If you could make your church better, what would you do? The church at Ephesus had its fair shares of problems like any other church. Today we will explore what wise counsel the Apostle Paul gave to the Ephesians as we discuss the unified body of Christ on Let God Speak. On our panel today, we have Rosemary Malkovich and Gail Fong. Welcome, Rosemary and Gail. Thank you. Let's begin with prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here today where we can open your word and discover the truth and your counsel for your church. Be with us today as we discuss. Bless our viewers and may your Holy Spirit be with us, Lord, as we let your word speak to us. May it be a blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The tongue and the teeth are to work in harmony to chew our food. The teeth cuts and crushes food, while the tongue moves it along different parts of the mouth. Sometimes, though, the tongue gets between the teeth and is not quick enough to get out of the way, and the teeth come crushing down on the tongue and excruciating pain radiates throughout the entire body. This can be an apt description of what can sometimes happen in the church. Gail, to start off our discussion, could you tell us what does Paul compare the church to? Yes, uh, in f the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27, Paul says, now, Paul writes, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So right here to the members of the church in Corinth, Paul says that they, the members, are uh, the body of Christ collectively and individually. They comprise the members or parts of the body. And then uh, Paul also writes in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, and uh, the Bible reads, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So Paul here, he states very clearly that the body is the church and Christ is the head of that body. So, um, yes, that they all fit together and they should be in harmony, all connected. It's beautiful. It's not just the church collectively is the body, but individual members are parts of that body. Very important. Absolutely. Uh, Rosemary, how important then is unity in the church? Do we have any indication from the Bible? Well, Paul placed a, a very high estimate on unity. Um, Christ did too when he spoke of the disciples and said that they were to love one another. And so Paul basically continues that theme. Let's have a look at two examples. The first one being in 1 Corinthians 12 
and verse 25, Paul writes that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. So we're looking here at um, no divisions, no schism, but each person thinking of each other, thinking of the other, not of themselves. And then our second example is from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, Endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here Paul is encouraging the church members to strive to be unified, to um, be at peace with one another, Mm -hmm. because this really shows Christ in the church. That's right. So does Paul give any indication, Gail, on how the church should go about achieving this? What what qualities should I cultivate uh, if I am going to help foster a spirit of unity in my church? Well, just reading the verses before, and I may read again as well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through to 3, the Bible says, And I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. And as Rosemary had just read, endeavouring to keep the unity of the spirit uh, in the bond of peace. So it's how we walk. So firstly, uh, I must remember who I am and whose I am. I belong to Jesus. I belong to God. I must conduct myself um, as one who does belong to him. And that would come through in the way that I live, the way that I speak, which leads us to the second, that conducting myself with humility, with patience, with gentleness, uh, in love. And uh, finally, I use the goal of peace as a strong motivator for unity. And I can only do that if I'm connected to the head, which is Christ. That's wonderful. And, you know, it's interesting, Paul writing from prison, um, he says he's encouraging the church to walk, and, and in the Greek, the peripateo means to walk about uh, freely. And you can see he's, he's contrasting to the church. I am in prison, mm-hmm. but you can walk freely. And he talks about the bond of peace. It's almost like let peace, the motivation of peace, shackle you and you know, hold you as a prisoner that you must be aiming for peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rosemary now, he talks about humility, patience, and gentleness. Why these three attributes and how do these help foster unity in a church? Okay. Um, to look at these three things you've mentioned, let's look at the opposite, the opposite of humility, patience, and gentleness. We'll look at pride and haste and brutality. Um, These things create conflict. That's all they can do. They cannot produce unity. Um, They all involve putting self first before anybody else. I want my way. It's me first. Um, The I generation, we all have an I problem. (laughs) And so we've got to do away with that because in Philippians 2, 3, Paul writes to the church in Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, this is true humility, trying to do that which is best for other people instead of for ourselves. It's exactly what Jesus did. It's being considerate of other people and wanting them to be happy. Um, And where this is, there is less conflict and more unity. It's just going to happen Mm. when you consider other people instead of yourself. And that's why he's really drawing the church to focus on these attributes. Mm. Now, we can't help but notice, Gail, as we read Ephesians chapter 4, that Paul mentions the word one uh, quite a bit. Uh, From verse 4 to 6, he mentions (coughs) seven ones. what are the first, uh, the first one? What's the first one that he mentions in verse 4? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, I'll, I'll just read that verse. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Um, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I think I read verse 5 as well. Yes, there's an awful lot of ones there. But this first one, he starts off with the idea that we are part of um, the one body. And, uh, and although we're many and different and diverse, but we are one. And there's to be no isolation or division in the body. Um, or in the church. But although we are of different parts, we actually are, need to be totally connected to the one body, which is the family of God. Yes. Very good. So now, Rosemary, we are also connected to each other through the body of Jesus Christ. What is the second one that, um, and how does it foster unity? Okay, in verse four, the second one is one spirit. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. The Godhead is a uniting of three beings. And so they are in perfect unity with each other as one person. And so the Holy Spirit can do nothing but bring unity if he is living in our our hearts. Mm. And that is his goal. Um, So the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives will bring us into unity and at peace with other people. Um, Where the Holy Spirit is, there is no discord, Mm -hmm. but peace and unity. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Where there is discord, we know the Holy Spirit isn't present. And if people want to read through further in this particular chapter, Ephesians 4, that we're looking at today, In verses 29 to 32, there's a good discourse there on what brings about grieving the Holy Spirit compared to inviting the Holy Spirit. So unity in the church, is it's a spiritual thing. It's the Holy Spirit that that brings unity. And we Mm. are only called to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Now, verse 4 mentions uh, one hope, the hope of our calling Um, Gail, what is this hope and uh, how important is it to unity? Well, in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, the Bible reads, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So right here, this hope 
is the second coming of Jesus. It's a great, it's the great expectation of the ages down through history. Uh, this has buoyed many hearts along with that expectant hope of the return of Jesus and his eternal kingdom. So it's the goal that as Christians that we are looking forward to, we're striving for, uh, it, it just, as I said, it buoys us up along the way. So if we are to live together with Jesus for all eternity, then it would be a natural consequence that right now on planet Earth, that we would have that spirit of love, brotherly love towards one another, because we are children of the King of the universe. So that would be emulating from God's people. And we have to live with each other and Jesus for quite a long time. So we yes. should really learn to, to love each other and get along with each other right here and right now. And um, now verse five introduces three other ones, uh, Rosemary. So what do they have in common with each other and how do they add to unity in the church? Well, let's look again at verse five. It says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus has to be our Lord, not just our Saviour. If he's only our Saviour, we are not walking in newness of life. We're not walking in the new birth. We're not walking in the Holy Spirit. So we need that Jesus is our Lord as well as our Saviour. And as our Lord, we will want to obey him because we know he loves us so much. There's one faith we can't be saved any other way than through Jesus. And to be united, we need to have that faith that unites us to Jesus and we'll be united with each other. And one baptism, when we are baptized, we are taken down into the water, into the death of the old person, the old man, the old woman, and we come up in newness of life with Christ and become a new creature in Christ. Those are necessary for unity in the church. And they, they all deal with putting self aside. Mm. Uh, putting, Always. Putting self um, behind and letting God reign. Mm. And um, Gail, the last one that Paul talks about uh, is God. He leaves God for last, I guess, as the best for last. Uh, but Paul adds another descriptor here, Father. How does the introduction of God as Father promote the idea of unity? Well, when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he did not teach them to, to pray, my Father, which art in heaven, but our Father, which art in heaven. So it's very collective there. And it's, it's acknowledging our connection to each other as well, that we are all sharing the same heavenly Father. Um, and Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, and just reading it from the contemporary English version, it puts it this way. God's spirit doesn't make us slaves who are afraid of him. Instead, we become his children and call him our father. So there's a transition from a power relationship to a loving and intimate familial relationship. Um, and with him as our father, we are connected to one another and um, become, yes, become his children, we call him our Father. This is, this is a wonderful thing 
we have a heavenly father. Amen. And then that makes us brothers and sisters, even though we might be, we might look different, come from different cultures and backgrounds. And different colors. Different colors, but yes. God as our father makes us mm. one. Excellent. And um, Rosemary, tell us now children, I think you have some children and maybe grandchildren. Um, do children love receiving gifts from their parents? And do we also receive gifts from God since he's our father? Well, for one thing, I always loved as a child receiving gifts from my parents or from anybody for that matter. Receiving a gift is always a special thing. God is our father and he loves to bestow gifts upon his children just as much as we enjoy to uh, seeing our children or grandchildren when they receive a gift, how happy they are. He'd, he loves to do the same. And in verse seven, it says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So grace is a gift from God and it is given to every believer and no one misses out. And one of the things about this is it is a gift, so it cannot be earned. And it is by grace because we don't deserve it. Mm. Very nice. So now the next verse, uh, Gail, sounds a bit mysterious. Uh, verse eight of chapter four of Ephesians. It says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What is this referring to, Gail? Well, here it's interesting. Paul is quoting from the psalm, actually Psalm 68 and verse 18. So originally, uh, I guess the quotation was meaning that where David, King David, um, who had conquered many nations uh, to make the kingdom of Israel extremely wealthy, um, uh, when, they, when they surrendered or they were defeated in battle, they paid tribute money to, um, to, the, to Israel's king. And when it was David, of course, he received that benefit. And this is how Israel became so wealthy under King Solomon. I mm. believe it has... A deeper meaning. Mm. And verse nine says, now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of uh, the earth. Rosemary, uh, this seems mm. to be suggesting that Paul is talking about Jesus. Is uh, How does how Jesus lead captivity captive? Well, there's a couple of aspects with the answer to this question. One is that Jesus died to take sin captive because we have been captive to it. He's taken the power. But let's look at Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 to 53. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So at the time of Jesus' death, um, the rocks were rent in twain, graves were opened. And when he rose again, there were people who were brought back from death. He didn't just hold on to life for himself when he rose again. He actually brought others to life as well and took them as trophies to heaven. Amen. So he made captivity captive in sin and he let the captives go free. Amen. Wonderful. So Gail, how is Jesus here different from what <coughs> David did in, in the Psalm? Well, David imprisoned those who were once free. 
But Jesus freed those who were once imprisoned by death. And David received gifts from those who he held captive. And Jesus gives gifts to those he has freed from sin and death. That's right. That's a, a, a fantastic um, difference. Mm. And uh, we saw in verse 7, Rosemary, that uh, every believer receives the gift of grace. Is that the only gift that believers receive? No, there are other gifts as well, including if we look at verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And there's other lists in the Bible as well in the New Testament. But see, some of them get these gifts. Not everybody gets every gift. But these are more gifts. Very, very well. So, uh, Gail, why does uh, Jesus give gifts to the church? Is it some form of reward for their faithfulness or for how much work they do? Uh, do I receive more gifts if I work a little bit harder or I give more? Is that how it works? Well, not quite. <laughs> um, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, uh, Paul writes on, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So God gives the gifts to his church <clears throat> so that it may be equipped or perfected and structured to perform its mission. And uh, which is, of course, sharing the everlasting gospel and the three angels message with the world around us and also serving others Amen. so we can help one another to grow. And uh, we can be assured that does not call us to do a work that he actually won't equip us to do because um, he gives us the tools himself. And that's the amazing thing because you may not think you have any gifts, but when you give your heart to Jesus, well, he equips those who he calls. That's right. Mm. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. <clears throat> and uh, now, uh, Rosemary, we have pastors today in the church. We have teachers uh, today. Um, what about apostles? Uh, do we still have apostles in the church and what do they do? Okay, then let's have a look at apostles. It's a, it's a different word that we use um, in the Bible. An apostle is one who was sent from the Greek word uh, verb apostello. I hope I said that right. That's right. Which means I send. In the classical Greek, um, they had this word for people that they sent, dispatched to go and do a particular job or to go somewhere as an ambassador. Um, the 12 disciples of Jesus were called apostles because he chose them and sent them out as his representatives. In the early church, the apostles were people who were eyewitnesses and could testify of Christ's death and resurrection. Of course, they finally died off and it changed role into administrative or ecclesiastical office um, roles. But today, basically, even though we don't use the word a missionary, fits the word of apostle or the, the job of apostle. That's good. So it's good that we still have these, uh, these <coughs> gifted people uh, in the church. Mm. And Gail, what about um, prophets? We, we know about Elijah, we know about uh, Daniel and John the Revelator, uh, but that was in, in biblical times. What about today? Does the gift of prophecy still work in the church today? I do believe so. Ephesians 4 and verse 13 uh, the Bible says, 
uh, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. So these gifts will be in the church till Jesus comes. And um, God never intended that the prophetic gift would only operate um, during Bible times. But um, these gifts were needed to help the church throughout the, to, to become united and to become fully spiritually and mature. And for us as Seventh-day Adventists, the gift of prophecy was given in his servant, um, raised up at a particular point in earth's history. Um, Ellen G. White was raised up to, uh, as she always called herself, the lesser light, but she pointed people to the greater light. Mm. And if you read her books, um, they will only ever lead you to a deeper relationship with Jesus. That's good. People always ask this question, um, you know, is the church today supposed to have a prophet? But it's interesting, verse 13 says that these gifts, including prophets, will continue to work in the church until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. So the church is still growing and we are still to use the, the counsel of the, of the prophets uh, to grow. Mm. And so really that, will, that perfection will only happen when Jesus comes. So the, the gift of uh, the prophetic gift still works in the church. Now, Rosemary, um, a church that is mature and uh, it's, it's perfected. Uh, what does such a church look like? Okay, I've got a quote here that I would like to read. And it's from a book called The Upward Look. It's a devotional book and it's on page 163. And it says, amazing words. No unpleasant words are spoken in heaven. There no unkind thoughts are cherished. There envy, evil surmising, hatred and strife find no place. Perfect harmony pervades the heavenly courts. That is what it's like in heaven and that's what God wants it to be like in his church on earth. Let's have a look at Ephesians 4, 14 to 16. It says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, marvellous words. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I love that part. Every part does its share. This is the end time church. It is not deceived by false doctrine. It teaches the truth in love. There is a spirit of cooperation and it experiences growth numerically and spiritually with every part, every member doing their part, their share. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it's, we can be confident that God gives us the tools and he sets out the plan of how uh, mm. the church can achieve this. That's all the time we have for our discussion today. Thank you very much, Gail and Rosemary. If you find the perfect church and join it, it will no longer be perfect. 
That is because the church is a wonderful showcase of God's grace in the lives of the believers who are growing to be more like Jesus every day. I'm excited to be a part of God's church where his boundless love for the salvation of sinners is expressed in the gracious gifts he bestows on his children. Thank you for joining us today on Let God Speak. All past programs plus teacher's notes are available on our website, 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also email us on lgs at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Join us again next time. God bless. You have been listening to Let God Speak, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. To catch up on past programs, please visit 3abnaustralia.org.au. Call us in Australia on 02 4973 3456 or email radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you.